Hi there. I am so excited to invite you to attend our fourth annual free virtual special education and advocacy conference. We are hosting it here at Ashley Barlow Company in partnership with Rebecca Poe Teaching. And we are so excited for a few new things at this year's conference. The first new thing is that we have not just one, but two different tracks for attendance. For the first time ever, we have created a track that is specific for school staff and teachers. We also still have that traditional track that we intend to be really great for parents and caregivers in the IEP arena. So yes, we have a teacher track and a parent track. On that teacher track, you are going to learn about things like easier data collection, gestalt language processing, behavior reading, and other super hot topics in special education practice, as well as advocacy. On the teacher and caregiver track, you're going to learn about stress management for caregivers using adaptive books, something that I have really kind of um, dove into here at my own house, inclusion advocacy, advocacy strategies, and so, so much more. That free ticket will give you one pass, one access to one presentation per hour on the track that you choose, either that teacher track or the parent track. Of course, if you are not available on January 19th or January 20th when the conference is taking place, you can buy tickets to access the conference on demand. And those tickets, of course, are available at our website, ashleybarlowco.com backslash conference slash 2024. Check out the website for more information about ticketing. This year, we also have something super exciting planned. We have decided to make this a two-day event. When I partnered with Rebecca Poe Teaching, I told her that I really feel like school districts, disability organizations, and other community organizations need to start providing trainings that are accessible to teachers, related service providers, administrators, parents and caregivers, and other community members that are interested in IEP support. What if we all attended the same training? What if we all learned information about special education practice, curriculum, how to read evaluations, that kind of stuff, about special education advocacy, how we can collaborate more, how we can work together, and even about special education laws. What if we all attended those presentations and we workshopped them together? So together with Rebecca Poteaching, I have created the Empowered Workshop Series, and we are excited to bring it to your organization or school in 2024 and beyond. If you are interested in having Rebecca and I bring a workshop to you, you can see a preview of the Empowered Workshops on January 19th, the Friday before our main conference programming. For more information about that, either send me a DM or check out the website, again, ashleybarlowco.com backslash conference dash 2024. We hope to see you January 19th and or January 20th and can't wait to connect with you. Hi everyone, welcome to the Ashley Barlow Company podcast. I'm Ashley Barlow, your host. If you are a parent, 
a teacher or someone who works at a school, or you're a community member, a volunteer or a staff member at an organization that supports people with special education plans, a coach, a tutor, or even a grandparent, you're in the right place. Sit back with an ice cold glass of lemonade, put on your walking shoes and grab some headphones, roll down the windows and cruise. Ready, set, go. Educate, advocate, collaborate. Today, I welcome Courtney Hansen onto the podcast. Courtney is an inclusion advocate. She has a master's in education and has taught secondary education before staying home to advocate for her children. She is a COPA SEAT instructor. SEAT is one of the programs that COPA offers in order to train advocates in special education. She also has worked to pass disability rights legislation at the state level. She's a fierce advocate for inclusion and operates a website called Inclusion Evolution, which you can find at www.inclusionevolution.com or on Facebook at Down Syndrome Inclusion Evolution. Courtney is speaking at our Special Education and Advocacy Conference, which I'm hosting on January 23rd, 2021. If you haven't heard about the conference, I really encourage you to go over to the website to learn more. I've got over 18 speakers. We will be meeting virtually on January 23rd. The conference is entirely free and I've got all kinds of different topics, lots on reading, some on behavior. I'm going to give a mini inclusion workshop. We've got information about progress monitoring specific to ADHD. I've got so much content lined up. I basically found my favorite special education advocates and experts and said, hey, will you give an hour talk for this conference that I'm having on January 23rd? It's entirely free. I hope that you're able to make it. If you aren't able to make it, you can simply download the VIP pass. That's $50. And what that does is it allows you to access the information at any time. You can also get everything as opposed to only being able to choose one topic per hour. So head over to the website to do that. One last little bit of information. If inclusion is really important to you, hop over to my website at ashleybarloco.com backslash shop, and you can download the inclusion workshop there. Let's get started with Courtney. Hi, Courtney. Hi, Ashley. Thanks so much for having me. Oh my goodness. Thank you for joining me. This is such a pleasure. So I'll just tell my audience that Courtney and I met when Courtney lived in Ohio. That's right. Um, and since then you're on, I guess, just your the next state after Ohio, right? Yes. After my husband finished residency in the military, we moved on. So we're just, we keep chugging along and moving to different states. <laughs> so now happen. Yes. Now we're in Washington state. Awesome. Well, why don't we start there? Why don't you tell us a little bit about your family and your history and your passion mm -hmm. and kind of your journey? Sure. Yeah, we are currently in Washington State. I think I'm, I was trying to think back. I think that's state number six. Um, and we have three kids. My husband's a military doc and um, I, my firstborn were twins. So I have twin boys. One of them has Down syndrome and they're eight years old. So they're in second grade this year. Um, they're both in the same class with Miss Rieger, who's been wonderful during all the virtual learning. Um, and then I have a five-year-old who will be starting kindergarten in this new year in the fall. So a, a five-year-old daughter. Yeah. 
You almost made it. I know I'm almost <laughs> there. Yeah. So we, we are close to retirement. We have just been um, moving along and just kind of in my advocacy journey, just trying to kind of get established um, nationally with uh, the Council of Parent Attorneys and Advocates, but then I do do a lot of local stuff and with moving along, moving to different states, that becomes difficult, but I do try to at least make the place I was living a little bit better when I leave, um, kind of that, that thought of uh, helping others before I, before I hit the road and move on. Yeah, well, I met you as an advocate um, mm -hmm. and we've done even an advocacy project together yes. um, through the Government Affairs Committee that I was on and still am on at the Down Syndrome Association of Greater Cincinnati. Um, did you feel your advocacy um, desire grow immediately when you delivered your twins or was that something that was kind of already established? Talk to me about mm -hmm. kind of your journey as an advocate. Sure. Um, I, the boys um, were a surprise to have twins. They were my firstborn. So that was kind of a surprise. I was teaching in Utah at the time. I had taught um, secondary education at a middle school social studies. And um, really, I, uh, when I had Troy, it was a complete surprise. So those first, I would say first four months or so was um, just kind of taking in everything Down syndrome and learning and um, just hitting that curve, right? That learning curve. Um, so after that first year, I, I really, I remember getting awesome advice that first year that said, uh, a friend of mine said, just treat him like any other baby, just enjoy your baby, right? And so um, I tried, I don't know that I was completely successful in doing that because I do kind of have a type A personality and I really did want to like learn it all and learn it as fast as I could. But maybe having that surprise and not really knowing beforehand gave me that time I needed to learn um, my, about my children, right? Learn who they were, um, learn their personalities. And so in their second year, I did, um, I did go to a rights law conference that I absolutely loved. And that kind of got my feet in to advocacy. And I had taught before and I had had a student with Down syndrome in my class before. So I had some, you know, semblance of like what the future could hold, right? Um, but I didn't have any clue. I didn't have any idea of um, what advocacy meant, what inclusion meant. Um, even with a master's in education, that was not necessarily on my radar. Um, yeah. So yeah, and I don't know if it was the same for you as a teacher, but it just- It was. In fact, um, so I graduated from college in 2000 and mm -hmm. instead of getting my master's in education, I went to law school. Yeah, right. Awesome. <laughs> All of these things help though in the end. <laughs> I tell other teachers that I, I figured what I already know everything there is to know about Piaget. Why would I learn more about yeah. it? <laughs> um, so, I mean, and I, I was pretty sure I wanted to switch careers anyway, but I really thought, you know what, I'll go to law school. I'll get smarter. They'll pay me as though I have a master's degree, maybe a PhD. And then nobody's going to take my teaching certificate away from me. Exactly. And it has, it's, it's a great background. I'm sure you mm -hmm. feel the same way as a exactly. teacher. Yes. And the advocacy work that I do and the legal work that I do. Um, so yes, I do feel that way, but I did not um, learn anything about inclusion um, and really not a whole lot about special education. I was a mm -hmm. German teacher. Yes. Um, and certainly I took, you know, I took one class in special ed. I know. And it was on modification. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. It's so yeah, it's crazy. It, yeah, it is troubling to think that I have a master's in education and I same with me. I took one course 
Um, so I think I do think a lot of that inclusion journey needs to start in, in education schools. That can be an entire podcast, I'm assuming. Um, yes. You can maybe you should look into. But yeah, so that's where my journey started. It did help, like you're saying. I, I did some journalism before that, and all of these things kind of led me on this path. Of course, my twins' birth was what you know really took off and made me think I need to really look into advocacy and advocating for my son, and and then eventually helping other people. Well, that's awesome. And the proof's in the pudding because he's having a great experience in school thus far. And yeah. um, so that's wonderful. Well, the disability community is lucky to have you. Um, so then how has that journey kind of influenced your professional um, path? Yeah, like I was telling you, I um, started out actually in television journalism. I was at a, a little tiny, we called it the Redneck Riviera in Panama City Beach. A lot of people go there on spring break, right? Yeah. Um, and I did local politics. I have a political science degree. So all of these things kind of led me to this path. Um, I met my husband, went back and got my master's degree in education and taught. Um, I taught kids with IEPs, but again, I did not really have a ton of experience in special education. Um, and then when my son was born, obviously that was the catalyst for um, starting this journey. So getting involved in conferences, getting involved in organizations like the NDSS and NDSC, um, and uh, getting involved with the Council of Parent Attorneys and Advocates. Um, really, that's what led me on this journey and kind of really focusing on educational advocacy. I have done stuff in the, the state of Ohio um, I did help with a bill to end organ transplant um, discrimination against people with disabilities with some of our, you know, friends. And so that was um, a look at the more political side and how, uh, you know, working with that and making that bill into a law. But educational advocacy is really where I uh, want to be and think that it's super important. It's, you know, we all know that um, a, a, a segregation early in life is more likely to lead to segregation later in life. So I really think that this is um, a super important thing to focus on. And so all of these things have helped me to lead to that path. And, and also just being a military spouse and having to move around. Um, I do think that that personal journey of being a military sp spouse has forced me to have to look at how as a nation, we are serving kids with disabilities um, and not just necessarily focus locally. Right. So, you know, I have right, to look yeah. at different state laws and different state cultures and stuff like that. You know, that's a good point. And this is a little off topic, but I think that it's valuable for my audience um, to say as well is, you know, you talked about your work with the national organizations and I know that you've been involved in local organizations, your local Down mm -hmm. syndrome associations and whatnot. And I think that that's a really good tip because I remember the first time I went with the National Down Syndrome Society to their Buddy Walk on Washington, mm -hmm. which is a, a hill day, so to speak, a day when they set up advocates and they train you and you go to DC and you go and you talk about whatever issues it is that they've asked you to, to speak about. Um, and I remember thinking, oh my gosh, the legislators actually do want to hear about mm -hmm. our children and our issues and their constituents. And so if you know, anybody out there is thinking, gosh, I really would like to do more. I really would like for people to know my story. A great way to start, honestly, is with those national organizations. Hop over mm -hmm. to their website and see what they've got in their advocacy tab. Um, and that kind of spans, you know, from health um, 
issues to education Mm -hmm. issues to financial issues to all kinds of all the different issues that affect a person with a disability um you know it kind of helps you and I like you have um kind of chosen the education path to be my true passion but Mm -hmm. um yeah it's but it's all interconnected it's super interconnected. And we know that, you know, the, our kids are going to be adults for longer than they're going to be in school. Right. So, um, but you know, we have to establish that educational inclusion that's going to lead to maybe post-secondary education, um, and community-based services that are super important to us. So, yeah, I think it's important to get involved nationally, um, locally, all of those things are, will help you on your way. I think, I, I think that's great advice. Yeah, yeah, that I, I'm grateful that you brought that up. So I know that that your passion is education. And then to get even more specific with your passion, I know it's inclusion. You've already mentioned it today. Why is that your passion? Why are you so why do you Jones for inclusion? Yeah, I mean, simple the the simple answer are my twin boys. I mean, I really think, you know, when I was pregnant with twins, I could envision them in my mind. Um, playing together when they were young children, graduating high school together, um, maybe living in the same town, all of these dreams that parents have. And when you have twins or siblings, you see these things in your mind's eye. And so um, I really, when I had the boys, um, there was this moment in time where I remember my husband saying like, are they ever going to play together? Right. And, and these ish, these things that are completely ridiculous now looking back, but you have the, these fleeting moments where um, society we know has, has had barriers up for our children. Um, and I had this realization, honestly, that like my twins could literally be going through K through 12 together. And one son, one non-disabled son would, um, just automatically have access to any school, any classroom that he could ever want. No questions asked, right? No questions asked. He just needed to be breathing, right? And my other son literally would have to fight to have to walk into that door. He would have to fight um, and would, I would have to do many things to get get the same exact access. Um, And that's just wrong, right? And so um, when we look at the numbers, my fear really kind of um, is confirmed, right? Because we look at just, I know I was looking at the 2019 annual report from the Department of Ed and they said, that number is still low for kids with intellectual disabilities, still only 17% are included. When you look at my state, the state that I'm living in now in Washington state, that number is only 5.9%. Wow. Yeah. And so it's abysmal. And honestly, like my son, I I mean, I'm shocked in a lot of ways. He is that 5.9%. When I look around me and I am helping other people advocate in neighboring school districts, no one is getting what we're getting. Right. I know. And I'm trying to help them with different things, but it's this cultural systematic um, barrier that a lot of kids yeah. are face, facing. So inclusion is my fight because of my twins. I want them to be um, having the same access. They don't necessarily need to be in the same classroom. This year they are. They have been in the majority of the school, year, school years that they've gone through. Um, but they at least have to be getting access to the same things. Even if they're not learning at the same level, they're not learning at the same level. Um, my son with Down syndrome does not have to keep up, and the law says he doesn't have to keep up, but right. he does need to be able to get access and 
and have the same opportunities um, to learn things that his typical son or his typical brother has. Yeah, and to be together, you know? I mean, yeah. I remember something um, that like really just got stuck on me when we were having the discussion with our school district in the very beginning was, um, I wanted for my son to experience our amazing school fundraiser. As silly oh, yeah. as it is. Yeah, for I would, sure. I could see him kind of like standing on the um, sidewalk at kind of the age that he is now, like a fourth grader feeling kind of cool, feeling like he's got yeah. all these great neighborhood friends. There's five kids on our street that are in his grade. And I remember thinking, um, he's going to be standing there and be and say like, well, my school's festivals in September. Mm -hmm. And, you know, everybody else is talking about all the fun and, you know, we got to go on a field trip because our classrooms used for pictures with Santa or something. And um, it's, it truly is that um, community thing that really right. went through for me, but I hadn't really thought about it. You know, I don't think I've ever asked you that question before. I had never really thought about it from the perspective of a mother of a twin. And I think mm -hmm. that that's a really interesting, unique way to look at it. And to you, it's just fact. They need to yes. be together. Yeah. That's yeah, it. for sure. Yeah. So, I mean, I can still, even though those, uh, you know, in the media aftermath of birth, I, some of those dreams were dashed and it, you know, they don't necessarily need to graduate together or go to college together. I mean, even typical twins may not, but right. the, I just want the, the opportunity or the access to be there. So, um, and I, I do want them to be get together and, the, yeah. you know, and his other sibling, his, I want them to be in a community together. Um, and they are, and it's awesome. You know, we play with the same neighborhood kids and go to the same neighborhood community centers and libraries and, um, we're, he's part of the community, which is right. number one for us. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and that's a tip that I give people if they're, um, trying to prove their way into an inclusion, which is unnecessary and, and not mm -hmm. maybe the strongest legal argument, but, um, you know, it, show pictures of church and show pictures mm -hmm. of um, those play dates and play dates with um, cousins and the soccer mm -hmm. league that you do and that kind of thing because we can be successful in included environments in places other than school and we can mm -hmm. take those experiences to show how beautiful they are in a school advocacy situation as well. Mm -hmm. um, so let's, let's get a little deeper into the inclusion onion. What we were talking before we hit record, um, mm -hmm. kind of about that definition of inclusion. Um, and so, you know, kind of the overarching question is, what is inclusion? What does it mean to you? Is it something that's finite or is it more conceptual? Mm -hmm. Well, I mean, I guess as a special education advocate, I'm not an attorney, but I do, I do like to look at the legal language. I do like that um, educational definition of inclusion. Um, I really try to kind of uh, reach for that, you know, 80% or more of their day, they're in regular ed. Um, but we know that not necessarily being in 80% or more of their day, they still might be kind of a, a fly in the wall, right? In that classroom. I do remember I when I first had the boys, I had a um, mom that was a mentor to me. She had a child with Down syndrome that was going into kindergarten. And she shared a story where they went to back to school night. Um, and when they arrived, the parent and the child went into the general education classroom that the son with Down syndrome was assigned to. And all the other kids had their names on the desk and their names on the cubby and his name wasn't there. Ugh. Right. And it's just heartbreaking. And she, she, she said she just cried and didn't know what to do. And, um, you know, he was included a name on a roster, but really was kind of a ghost in that room. Right. right. And so 
But I will say that I do think um, getting your foot in the door, even even bad inclusion, I think in many ways is better than segregation, right? It's better. I agree. Some, yep. Yeah, because getting your foot in the door and then using the law, which is on our side, yep. using all the research, which, you, which is all on our side, um, and being able to educate yourself can then make you get a step further into that room, right? That, that was um, my only goal. I said, if yeah. they open the door yeah. to the school right. and he gets to take one step inside, mm-hmm. my son is um, really, really funny. And it's hard to not just think he's hilarious and <laughs> therefore you love him. Yeah. Um, and he's like, he just gathers people. And I, mm-hmm. I mean, everybody's different, but I said, if his foot enters, like crosses the threshold of that school, he will be, be loved love. and it will be yeah. fine. They just they don't know be. him. Yeah. They just need to get to know him. And yeah. it was true. I mean, and he got much more than that as a result of advocacy and, and a mm-hmm. lot, honestly, a lot of empathy that came yes. out of my heart and my soul and just continuing mm-hmm. to shout his worth. And, um, you know, he, as a result of that leadership and advocacy, he mm-hmm. has had an excellent experience when truly they did not want him there. And they right. is, you know, very, very generally speaking, but mm-hmm. <laughs> they did yeah. not want him there. So. Yeah. But the cultural aspect of it. Yeah. And so, yeah, I think, I think that that definition of inclusion, it can mean a lot for a, a lot of different things for a lot of different people. But I think if we look back specifically at Congress's intent of the least restrictive environment, um, they wanted kids, the strong presumption that was, was that kids should be with non-disabled peers, right? Those kids with disabilities, yeah. and they should have access to general education. So I would say that that's my definition. I want my kid to have access to general education. I want him to be with his brother and his friends, um, other non-disabled peers. And um, I want other disabled peers to be with him too, right? And we've, yeah. we've had great experiences with that Um in, in previous grades and in this grade, it's a little harder this year with virtual learning, but yeah. having that community of um, kids with disabilities and non, non-disabled students together has um, really been magical, at least in our situation um, and not always easy and not always perfect. And we've had to like, you know, nitpick to make it what it needs to be. Um, and it still can be better, but um, that's really kind of what, how I would in, in, uh, define it for myself. I would define it as being, having access really is having access yeah. and being, being included with supports, the supports that you need. Yeah. So. Well, I mean, I, I, and it's very much the same for me also. I, I honestly don't have anything to add. I mean, um, that is exactly how I feel about it. So I guess, you know, kind of the, and you just alluded to it is talking about least restrictive environment, talking about that we abbreviated LRE, um, you know, that's kind of the, the mandate is that schools at least try to place a child in that least restrictive environment. And I don't know about you, but I have a lot of um, kindergarten or first grade parents, even preschool parents that call me and say, well, you know, we, we had our meeting mm-hmm. and he's going to check into this small little room with eight kids in it. Mm-hmm. And he gets to go to specials and lunch with his um, general education peers. And that's all he gets to do. Um, and to me, LRE doesn't, I mean, it's not like the definition of LRE is, well, at least in kindergarten, you get to try, right? right. <laughs> but truly mm-hmm. it is. And so I think, um, you know, your reference to the statute is really important because in all of our advocacy, we have to go back to the statute. Right. So how, you know, if you've got a client that comes to you and says, um, 
it, we've got a placement issue. They want to, to place my child in mostly a self-contained classroom or a resource classroom or something like that. How do you use the law about LRE to make a good argument? Um, I mean, I have had, especially in this state, I've had a lot of, um, like you were talking about preschoolers. Um, that's been a huge issue in this state. There's very few inclusive public preschools. And so often um, I will tell, I'll tell people that you need to share your story, but you need to put it in writing um, and just make your request in writing, right? Um, you don't have to shove the law in their face. Um, they should know it. Um, you don't have to repeat the law to them. Um, but, but describing who your child is and describing your goals, your long-term and short-term goal, short goals for that child is a first step. Um, yeah. Making a specific ask and also more importantly than making that ask is um, requiring them to give you a cogent response, right? Like we, we know that legally they have to give you not just lip service. They can't just say, oh, well, he has Down syndrome or oh, he has autism. So his least restrictive environment is this self-contained program, you know, 30 minutes down the road. When we know for right. a fact that just that language alone is so toxic. I mean, honestly, it's really toxic because yeah. when we start saying that the least restrictive environment is somewhere other than the regular classroom, that's just actually illegal, right? Like it's, yeah. Not, yeah. it's not what Congress says. Um, but more than that, I think what it does is it kind of is a red herring for um, parents and school districts that somehow um, the regular classroom is not good enough for the vast majority of our kids when that was the intent of Congress. The intent of Congress was to have a, a strong presumption that they would be in that regular classroom and that um, all the services would be portable and would be taken yeah. to them. Um, so I don't know if I'm getting back to the, but really with my clients, I've had clients that have tried to get inclusive preschools here and we had success in a neighboring district, um, the Bethel School District locally, but it was really getting um, the, the administration to realize that this is the way the state's moving. Um, I'm mm -hmm. on a, a statewide preschool collaboration, preschool inclusive collaboration team. And the state has realized that the, that almost exclusively all the school districts in the state are not following LRE for preschool. Oh, wow. Yeah. Huh. And so, um, just kind of selling that to Bethel and being like, you yeah. know, you could be out on front on this. You can be part. So now they're part of the, the picked team, the preschool inclusion team. And that parent has kind of collaborated with them. And now they're going to invite um, uh, uh, preschoolers to come in. And I shared my story of my twins in Ohio because we did preschool in Ohio and they were together for three years in an inclusive preschool, public preschool in Centerville, Ohio. Um, and uh, they, the argument that a lot of times these IEP teams would make to us is, oh, well, Washington doesn't have universal preschool, so we can't do that here. Mm -hmm. And I would say, you know what, Ohio didn't either. Ohio doesn't have it. Virginia doesn't have it. And still, their state has issued guidance that says you have to follow the law. Um, you have to do these things. Right. Um, and just pushing them to put that in writing is what I would tell my clients is that yeah. they need to put it in writing that this is why they're not going to even try from the very beginning to put your child in regular ed. And when they have to put it in writing, then their tone starts to change a little bit. Yeah. It still, it still can be a fight, but. 
Well, I, I think that's a good point too. That was probably yeah. the first advice that I got when I felt so lost many, many years ago um, was get the prior written notice. Um, I actually, in my inclusion workshop, I have a list of all, not all, but a lot of the Department of Ed guidance documents that yeah. talk very specifically about those issues. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I have now printed it off. And I have it like in this little inclusionary binder that I take to IEP meetings that oh, nice. have an inclusionary nature. And I'm like, well, actually in letter to Autry, blah, blah, blah. And, yeah. you know, I feel like I sound really, really smart when in fact, I've just written it down. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's awesome though. But and yeah, I- it's, it's in my little inclusion workbook. Um, and it's interesting the way that you said that, and I don't even know if you did, but you started off with talking about your future plans mm-hmm. and that Long-term is the, goals. Yeah. It's the number one thing. I call it a future planning statement. And I actually have a freebie on my website about that too. But, um, you know, talking and what I do is I go through kind of six areas of adult life that I've articulated. um, And then I go, I take those into adult life. And then I describe what they would look like in high school. So what experiences do we need in high school to talk about, um, you know, reaching these goals as an adult. So like Mm -hmm. I went for my son, he's got great friends, great little friends in school. And I Mm -hmm. picture them having a Tuesday night bowling league when everybody comes in from college, you know? And so I'm like, okay, but then he needs to know how to behave in a loud environment. Mm -hmm. And so, because, and we also like to go to the Cincinnati Reds games and his brother's a swimmer. I would love nothing more than for him to be able to go to college swim meets if his brother swims in college, you know, Mm -hmm. because we'd have to travel there and whatnot. And so we talk about those things because then school knows, oh, well, if there's an assembly and it's the science fair thing um, and it's gonna be loud, we've got to figure out a way for Jack to be included in that environment because this is this long-term goal, you know? That's really awesome. You know, it's like really, really small, but then I encourage my clients to take that from high school down to whatever this year is. So maybe yeah. you stop at middle school. Maybe it's, maybe that's how you get the argument that he needs a spot on student council or he needs mm-hmm. a spot on the basketball team or, you know, whatever. Um, you think about it long-term and then you apply it back down to today. So yeah, you and I, I love heard that. I love, and it's kind of like as a teacher, you, 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 te- you um, plan backwards, right? And yeah. it's that same concept. And I do love that idea of how specific it is. I always tell my clients to, um, that I have a, like a parent input form, but to have that copied and pasted into the parent concerns section of your IEP so that yeah. it's part of the record, right? Because oftentimes they'll put it in their own words or just yeah. delete it all together. So even if you have a pared down version of what you're talking about, but it's in the parent's words, I think that's super important to have copied and pasted into the IEP. I love that idea. That's great. Yeah. Super duper important. I completely agree. So shifting gears a little bit, um, I thought we would talk about just some frequently asked questions about inclusion. And I think the first one, and and you, um, you know, write about this a lot on your blog and that is why does it work? Because all the research shows it does. Right. Um, and in fact, um, one of the best research studies I love to, I like data, I like research, right? And the one that I always point to is the research study that shows that since they've been taking research about 45 years ago when IDEA came out, um, there has been no research studies that have showed an academic benefit for kids with intellectual disabilities in separate settings. I mean, that was a huge shock to me. I think oftentimes we look at that, that quote um, in part A that says, you know, 
30 years of research shows that having high expectations, having them in the regular, that quote from Congress, in my mind, when I was first starting with advocacy, I, I just assumed that was kind of hyperbole that that like, right. yeah, there was truth in it, but gosh, there certainly has to be just as much research for separate settings. And it's just not there. Like if you yeah. can find it, please share it with me because it's not there. And so why does it work? Because the data shows it works because Congress um, it wants it to work. Right. Um, and so it works also because um, we are support, we're, we're there as a parent to support not only our child, but also hopefully to support that teacher. And I think that's a huge way to make inclusion work, not just legally and on paper, but also actually meaningfully for your child in class. You have to be your child's best advocate, but I would say also the teacher's best advocate. Um, yeah. If you really want it to work, you need to help them out. I mean, you do yeah. because yeah. like we were saying at the beginning of this, we have masters in education and learned nothing. I mean, one class in special ed. Right. So helping those people out. And one thing I like to tell my teachers is you don't need to know, you don't have to be an expert in Down syndrome. You no. do not need to know all the special education stuff. I'm proud that you are the content expert. That's why I want my son in your class. Um, and you need to know some things about him, right? Specific yes. things about him. But yes. um, I, I think some of his best teachers have actually not been connected to the special education world at all. They've just yes. been really good content experts in their fields, right? Me too. Yeah. yeah. And actually, um, I think the best teacher that Jack has had is um, a teacher, is a gen ed teacher, is somebody that yep. spent more time talking to the other children than she did to Jack. You know, oh, yeah. like she had yeah. him, he has ADHD and she had him before he was um, medicated and she spent okay. so much time talking to everybody else. Like they'd say, Jack pulled my hair and she'd say, well, why'd you get so close? Mm -hmm. Yeah, <laughs> and it was exactly. Like yes. Teaching the world. Like, exactly. you know, he's going to exactly. pull your hair. So back right. up. And of course she supported Jack too. And she addressed yeah. the behaviors. It's not really that, but she was just, she just got him. She mm -hmm. got him and she just really carried it out. And I'm certain she had the confidence to teach mm -hmm. him and she had taught somebody else with Down syndrome. There haven't been many that have gone to um, Jack's school, but um, she had taught somebody else that had Down syndrome, but she's just a confident lady. Yeah. And she was like, mm -hmm. yeah, sure. I mean, this will be right. great, you know? Yeah. Um, yeah, that's that's who I'm on the lookout for too, every year. And I, I kind of stock them like the, you know, oh, yeah. the next year's teachers. But yeah, I mean, I, I agree. It's never the person that necessarily I think is going to be a perfect special ed teacher, right? right. Um, so yeah, I, I think that's, that's, that's how inclusion works. It's having the support and training of the teacher. And like you said, I think that's a great idea of having the kids buy in, right? And yeah. training them too. It's not always about um, how do we get, how do we change this child with Down syndrome so he can be included? No, right. you know, that's right. not what equity is. It's how do we change the environment? No. Yeah. And that's exactly right. So the equity piece, that's a great transition to my favorite kind of a hot topic right now in, um, in the world, really, it's not just disability specific, yeah. but it is kind of that equity question. So, mm -hmm. um, you know, we think about equality versus equity. And I think that really Andrew F, the most recent Supreme Court case kind of addressed equality versus equity in its own way. Um, but to me, equality is lack of segregation in schools, right? That happened with Brown versus Board of Education in the 50s. So um, that means that Jack has a right to sit in a classroom, but nothing's modified for him. He has no accommodations. He doesn't get special education. That would be equality. He has a right to have his foot in the door. Right. Um, 
but there's this equitable piece where, you know, people are entitled to um, special education services would mm-hmm. provide them equity. And so I wondered if you had kind of any thoughts on um, why equity is so much more important than just equal and equal opportunity to education. Yeah. And I think it kind of brings in that equity piece brings in the whole idea of um, an individualized education, right? And how how do we make it so that it's meaningfully um, ambitious for this kid, but also so that they're making progress in light of their disability, they don't have to necessarily keep up to be in. Um, and I think, honestly, um, there is a lot of um, buzz around equity, but oftentimes the, the, the schools aren't even looking at disability at all when they're, when yeah. they're looking at equity, unfortunately, and w- which is a problem because, yeah. um, I mean, just take, for instance, the, the big school districts here, the biggest school district in the state of Washington has made this huge buzzword around equity, but it's all about race. And yeah. um, what I would say is there's this huge intersectionality between race and socioeconomic status and disability, but that's the piece that they're almost always missing, right? They're never really talking about the disability piece. And I think that um, bringing that into the conversation and talking about universal design for learning, talking about how we can train teachers and paraeducators to help individualize and, and create equity in the classroom it's not gonna just impact um, and benefit kids with disabilities. It's gonna impact and benefit everybody in that classroom. Yeah. Um, and yeah. so, yeah, it's, it can't just be the foot in the door. Um, and it's not, and if we, if we can be equitable, equitable, that's where we wanna get because it's gonna be good for everyone, right? Everyone yeah. involved. Yeah, I, I mean, so, I agree entirely. Yeah. Yeah. And that's really an, an idea set up that way. You know, mm-hmm. idea yeah. is set up to address the unique needs of each particular child to provide that individual education plan. And, and it must be individualized. And, you know, mm-hmm. I, I say it's specially curated for each particular child. Um, it should be. And so that's really what we've got to do. We've got to look at the child's profile. Are we, mm-hmm. um, you know, really, really strong in visual learning or what's our auditory profile like and that sort of thing, and then develop the curriculum that meet those individual needs. And um, yeah, that's, that's equitable. And that's really every learner, right? I mean, that's, right. my, typ- that's right. my typical son too. Like, how does he learn best? And the best teachers of the 21st century are going to be the teachers that aren't just teaching a generic student, right? Um, yes. They're going to have to put, bring in those UDL practices and talk about how kids can learn in different ways and how it's okay for them to present material in different ways. And um, it's yeah. no longer acceptable to uh, teach in kind of an equal, right? Instead of teaching like a, for equality, we have to teach equitably instead. Um, so yeah, yeah. It's, a, it's a huge concern, I think, especially in um, the nation, but also just trying to really bring in disability. I feel like that's been a lost topic. Like I don't, I, I feel like that people are really not looking at that intersection. Yeah. Uh, and I wish more um, administrators were and more, you know, movers and shakers were, were involved in that for sure. For agree. That. I agree entirely. Whenever I get invited to a conference or anything um, from a school or from a um, professional organization that talks about diversity and equity and equality, I always write back and say, um, if you would like anybody to talk about this from a disability yeah, perspective, exactly. I'd be happy to do so because I think it's really, I agree with you that um, you know, we're left off. Nobody's taken me up on the offer yet. They're probably like, oh, I knew she would say that. 
Um, <laughs> I, mean, I mean, really, when you're looking at the numbers too, just going back to those numbers, a lot of kids of color and black students are overrepresented in special education, are usually um, overrepresented for the intellectual disability label. And we, yes. then when we go back to those numbers of kids with intellectual disabilities being included, most of them are segregated, right? Yes. So there is this huge issue of um, being equitable for all of those students, students with disabilities and race being an intersection of that, I think is yeah. a huge and issue. One of, the, one of the goals of this company is to um, provide services in those areas where there is such a lack of resource. And so when organizations purchase multiple licenses of my course, the Special Education and, and Advocacy Lab, I actually donate a, the same amount of licenses to an organization that serves primarily black and brown children or children oh, nice. living in poverty awesome. for that reason, because I, I, we need in America information to be in those organiz in organizations that benefit um, mm -hmm. children or in schools, you know, and, um, and I just feel really passionately about that. So I'm glad that you raised that, um, mm -hmm. raised that. So Another thing that you talked about um, already is the kind of need for parents to um, really support the teacher. Mm -hmm. And so that to me is teamwork, right? Like we right. are on an IEP team and no matter what your state calls it, it might be a PPT or an ARD mm -hmm. or an ARC or um, an IEP team or, or whatever it is, we're on a team together. And I've, I've kind of been thinking about the team a lot recently. And, and I've said it before on the podcast, I feel like if I worked in a corporation and I was supposed to design a plan that is individual to a particular person and the plan is supposed to last an entire year and mm -hmm. I'm going to sit down with four or five, 12 people and make this plan, I certainly probably would not only meet once a year, but mm -hmm. I absolutely would work on those relationships because oh, yeah. I'm part of a team. And if mm -hmm. it was my job, I would work on the relationships. And so... I am one of the proponents, not for everybody, but my personality suits even taking a, a treat, you know, like cookies or coffee mm -hmm. or something to mm -hmm. my meetings and that kind of thing. Um, but Volunteering I think in the classroom. I always, oh, yeah, yes. yeah, definitely yeah. those sort of things. I, I agree. I think you have to have a great relationship. Yes. Mm -hmm. And so that's my question to you is how else can parents um, mm -hmm. collaborate with their, the other people on their IEP team throughout the year and at the meetings. Yeah. I mean, I think like we said, we, I, I, I always like to have that working relationship with them. And, and, you know, I know that oftentimes it can be very tense with IEP teams and at the end of the day, it is business, I guess. Right. And there you are trying to kind of, um, get your child to reach the goals that you want to reach. Um, but being collaborative is going to be, get you a lot further along. So volunteering in the classroom. Um, and I like to also just um, kind of make sure that my feelings are out there, right? And, and it can be in a very positive way. But I always make sure that I'm giving ideas for what I want to see in the IEP. So, um, I, you know, having an IEP input form, and it could be very simple. I know um, the Department of Education and in most states, also have like a guidance um, input form that you can go based on the state's IEP and just going through that IEP and writing down ideas. And oftentimes the, the parents that I work for don't, they don't, they're like, well, I don't know what goals I want or things that I want, but 
just starting to kind of work through that, right? And, and knowing your child better. And I think also this like COVID period really has put parents in this situation where they now realize where their child is in education, what they're learning. Yeah. Um, and I think in some ways it's a silver lining because we do need to be part of that team. And how can you be part of that team if you don't know where your child is, you know, right. and, and what they should be reaching for next, what that next school should be. Um, yeah. So yeah, I'm being part of the PTA um, and I'm not always necessarily a, com- a, pro- a proponent of like those special education PTAs. I'm just part of the regular PTA. I'm the secretary on it um, and learning what other people want. But the more important reason I like that is because then all the parents of typical kids that are on that PTA are hearing concerns from a parent that has a child with a disability. Yes. Um, and those parents are now um, have a buy-in, right? Like I'm friends with them. They yes. are rooting for us. They want, you know, they're like, we want you to get that teacher. I want my kid to be in your child's class because they know yeah. that class is going to have a paraeducator. It's going to have all these supports that are not just going to impact Troy, right? It's not going to just help him. So yes. um, just being a part of your community and being part of the parent community in your school and your teacher community is going to really help, I think, um, make people see that your family is just like theirs, right? And wants the same things in a lot of ways. We just yes. want to be included. It goes so, back to telling your story. That yeah, it always it really goes does. back, you know, communication, communication, communication. Mm-hmm. The one thing I will add though is you and I are like, I always sometimes I feel like I intimidate people with like, do this, do this, do this. Yeah. Yeah. So I'm obviously crazy busy with now two jobs and kids and, you know, like you. Um, And one of the things that I did recently was I reached out to my son's special education teacher, maybe about a year ago. And I said, listen, um, you know, my older son, I don't need to be on PTO for him anymore. Mm -hmm. And I've kind of run through all the things here. I'm going to be your helper. Why don't you send me laminating? Why don't, you know, laminating to cut or, um, I'm crafty. So like, if you want to make something into a fishing game to make it more exciting for Jack, yeah. I'll go buy the dowel rods and attach the magnets to the thing mm-hmm. for you and that sort of thing. And I do have to remind her, you know, that I want to help in that kind of thing. But I have kind of, again, curated a, a position for myself, a way that I can be involved in what she's doing and mainly to keep the relationship going, but also because, right. you know, special educators, my goodness, they have oh, to provide... Goodness. Holy cow, it's all too the overwhelming. Yeah. I just, when you think about how much they do, it's specially designed instruction for every single mm-hmm. child, for every single goal, the support in the gen ed classroom, mm-hmm. communication with the gen ed teachers, and with related service professionals and the behaviors and all of that stuff. It's like, it's please, overwhelming. I, yes, it is. They I deserve mean, all the wine. <laughs> yeah. I always tell, I always tell my uh, special education teacher that, and she finally got another special education teacher in this school. I mean, we have a small school, but I would tell her, and I wouldn't just tell her every time we went to the IEP meeting, I would tell the principal yes. she's doing too much. This is too yes. much. She needs yes. help. I would tell the principal every time, Good. every time I was in there. Um, and eventually they got someone in there. I don't know yeah. that it had anything to do with what I said, but it was true. You know, like yeah. she, they, man, they, they're going straight to heaven. <laughs> yes. No, I know yeah. it. I mean, it's, well, I get emails, you know, at five o'clock in the morning and I'm like, go to sleep. Even I'm asleep right there yeah. at yeah, that time. Exactly. Um, yeah. So, okay. So last question, and it's kind of the million dollar question and it is, what tips do you use to help people get inclusive IEPs? 
Yeah. So I kind of am in a unique situation because we're military. So I kind of like to look at it through that lens. And I know not everybody has the opportunity to move. Sometimes you live in a small town and you're going to live there and you really have to create inclusion just where you're at. Um, but if you do, if you're like me and you are moving a lot, um, it was very intimidating for me to move to a new place, knowing that we were only going to be there for two to four years. And I would have to recreate or maybe not recreate, just create inclusion for my son when it's never been done before. Um, so I did do some things. I've written blog posts about what I did. Um, a lot of it came down to uh, social media is a wonderful first step. So finding out which schools are inclusive through Facebook pages, um, local Down syndrome groups and things like that. Um, but like we talked about before we, we push record, a lot of people's definition of inclusion is different. Mm -hmm. So you really have to find out like how much time is their kids spending? Um, and it still may be different for your kid, but it gives you at least a first step. Um, right. And I also, you know, when we, when you're moving a lot, you look at sometimes at those like a generic ranking of the school districts. Those are completely useless when it comes to yes. special ed, completely useless. So um, often I um, will tell clients, well, then you need to look at, um, do like a freedom of information request and find out like, are there restraints and seclusions at your school? Is that happening? Um, how many state complaints are they getting? And this is delving really in deep, but um, I've wow. gone there. I've done that for the school district I moved to. And then when I moved here, I interviewed principles. And I said, you know, what is your idea of include? I asked them the same questions you're asking me, right? What yeah. is your idea of inclusion? Um, where are the kids at? Like, where is the special ed room? I want to go and visit it. Um, uh, and so that's kind of, I know that might not answer your question, but that's from a military perspective or a perspective of people moving often. Um, I really found, uh, I started with social media and I found a parent that had a child being included in the school already. Um, mm -hmm. And she opened the door for paraeducators to be in the class. Yes. And they yeah. had been before her. She basically filed a state complaint and got that door opened. And so I really did step through her, do her door, you know, I, huh? and uh, I was super thankful for that because all the other area school districts are not doing it. And I knew it would be a super long struggle um, <laughs> to get where I wanted to be for those short two or four years that we we're here. Um, right, but important so, two years because of their age. Exactly. You know, yeah, they're going to be here from kindergarten and, to third. Yes, it's super yeah. important. So I knew I wanted to kind of at least step in somewhere where they're at least open-minded, but I found something even better than that by interviewing the principal, finding out from that parent. I did do a freedom of information request because that, that's just how I am. But, yeah. um, you know, you can do those things. I think you're going to have a totally different path and I'm going to probably when we retire in two years from the military and I have to settle down in maybe a place I want to live, but may not be perfect for Troy. Right. right. Um, and I've already kind of resigned myself to the fact that I may need to have to create that inclusion myself. Right. And I'm going to have to through um, written requests, through sharing our story, through maybe potentially some state complaints or other things, I will have to do those things. And I will, I will if I need to, but having yeah. collaboration, working with the team and at least finding someone that's open-minded, I think that's, those are the first steps. To oh, that's it. awesome. Yeah, that's super duper helpful. Yeah. So Courtney, you're speaking at the conference on January 23rd yes. um, and tell everybody a little bit about what you're going to talk about in that um, session. Yeah, I have the myths of LRE. So I'm going to uh, bust some myths regarding our language around least restrictive environment and how we kind of, um, throw around that least restrictive environment in an incorrect way, 
which in my belief is kind of leading to a lot of kids being segregated in separate classes. And if we just make that simple language change and use what Congress um, is intending us to use when we talk about least restrictive environment, and then also using the research that backs up um, inclusion in least restrictive environment, that um, I think is going to be most beneficial systematically for many, many students, as well as our own children. So that's, awesome. that's what it's gonna be about, yeah. Yeah, that's awesome. I'm excited to listen to it also. Tell everybody where else they can find you, all of the, your blog and where everything is. Yeah, yeah, my website, my blog is um, inclusionevolution.com and they can find me on Facebook as Inclusion Evolution or I think you have to search Down Syndrome Inclusion Evolution on Facebook. I'm on Instagram as that and Twitter, I'm Troy's Advocate or you can search Inclusion Evolution as well. Awesome, thank you so much for joining me. Thank you for the opportunity. And we'll have you back soon. Awesome.